0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, you've almost certainly seen the documentary photographs. They're emblematic. African Americans trying to walk to school or sit at a drugstore soda fountain while white people yell and spit and scream at them. Should no one see those pictures or learn those stories? because some of them have skin the same color as those doing the spitting and the screaming. The most recent attack on anti-racist education is labeled as protective, as avoiding division, and as a specific assessment of critical race theory. To the extent that corporate media have bought into that labeling, they've misinformed the public. Not just about critical race theory, but about a campaign whose own architects say is about disinforming, confusing, and inflaming people into resisting any actual effort to understand or respond to persistent racial inequity. Luke Charles Harris is co founder and deputy director of the African American Policy Forum. He joins us today to talk about what's at issue. Also on the show, democracy and technology and digital rights groups around the world signed on to a letter in support of encryption, the ability of journalists, human rights defenders, and everyone else to have private communication, to talk to one another without being spied on by governments, including our own. You would think it would be a big deal, but judging by U.S. corporate media, it's evidently a yawn. We'll talk about what's going on and why it matters with Cindy Cohn, Executive Director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a lot of show, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In March of 2021, conservative activist and Manhattan Institute fellow Christopher Rufo openly declared the intention of the campaign to vilify any questioning of enduring racial inequities. Quote, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Close quote. Rufo wrote, he bragged that he had successfully frozen the brand of critical race theory and was, quote, steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. Close quote. Since then, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory nearly 2,000 times, according to Media Matters, and Rufo has acknowledged repeatedly that he doesn't know or care what critical race theory is. In that remarkable statement about what people might read, newspaper is not a metaphor. Media are the vehicle for this anti-anti-racism campaign, which has achieved devastating traction in a country in which overwhelming majorities, 76 percent in a recent poll, acknowledge racial and ethnic discrimination as a big, not a past or historic, but a big problem. Luke Harris is deputy director at the African-American Policy Forum, a group he co-founded with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw and where I am a board member. Welcome back to Counterspin, Luke Harris.
1: Hi, Janine. It's uh, always nice to hear your voice and always nice to be back.
0: I'm a media critic because I think it's legitimate to look at the world the way that it's presented to people. So if we're talking about what you've heard about critical race theory, what and more essentially who is at the center of this story that folks may have heard? What What should we know about the forces at work here?
1: Well, you know, it's like the world is turned upside down. Uh, the way I look at it, that the far right has moved to the center of the Republican Party, and this attack is a well-coordinated response to the most recent racial reckoning. What's going on? If I look at it historically, well, we're a democratic republic born in the midst of the genocidal experience of Native Americans, of slavery, of apartheid. And exclusionary immigration laws that, for example, seriously restricted the entry of Asian Americans into this country until late in the 20th century. But we've never really confronted the implications of that history. For the most part, we've not confronted that history at all. And nonetheless, it is in this setting that the right has created a political and moral panic. They are pushing back against the possibilities of progressive social change across the board. The attack on CRT is just the tip of the iceberg. What's it about? I think really it's about galvanizing support for the Republican Party in in the 2022 and 2024 elections. Nowadays, the right is concerned that the racial justice advocates have created a powerful multiracial movement in response to the 2020 killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery and other victims of anti-black violence at the hands of the police. And they want to, as best they can, quell that moment. So their campaign is basically an effort to create a critical race theory boogeyman, as you suggest, and pour everything into that category that they believe will prompt fear, discomfort, and pushback on the part of parents and voters who are primed to respond to the hysteria that they're trying to create. They want to use this tactic, I think, to drive people to the ballot box, and to ultimately control down the road local school boards, Congress, and return to the oh, office so important of the president. You know,
0: when Counterspin spoke with Kimberly Crenshaw in December of 2020, Trump had issued this executive order outlawing critical race theory and any kind of mention of white supremacy, and people thought it was rhetoric. I was one of them. I thought that this would be kind of washed away. We suspected Biden would be elected and that executive order would be rescinded. And it was. And yet, somehow, that still didn't matter. And now many of the things that, you know, measures that are going forward in school boards, they won't go through, you know, a lot of them violate the First Amendment, minimally, they won't be passed. And yet, that may not matter. It can still have an effect. And we know that from history, right? Laws don't have to pass to have an impact.
1: Yeah we we, sure yeah, we we sure do know that from history. What may not become official law may alter the political universe such that in terms of the elections in 2022, the elections in 2024, that the Republicans achieve what they want. You know, this is a long-term campaign. We're kind of looking at this 40 years into the process of them moving the nation in a direction such that these kinds of considerations seem reasonable. You probably recall, Janine, that, oh, I, I don't know, it was several years ago the African American Policy Forum's Unequal Opportunity Race, which is just a four-minute video that has runners running around a track, and it reveals some of the obstacles that people of color, men and women, face that their white counterparts don't. And we introduced genocide, slavery, apartheid, school segregation. It was just a basic teaching video, and we had used that video really globally It had been seen by millions of people, but it wasn't until just a few years ago that that video was shown at a a Black History Month performance in, I think it was Ryan Virginia, and that was considered to be a a hate video. Race and the obstacles that it presented was banned at that school, and we had to push back so that those schools could show those kinds of things. And so building on that kind of ideological aggression that Trump moved in the direction that he was moving at the federal level. But this has been going on, these these kinds of ideas have been pushed by the Manhattan Institute, the Heritage Foundation, conservative think tanks, and then with the spread of Tucker Carlson and Fox News and Christopher Ruffo, now at least 26 states have introduced bills or taken other actions to ban or limit CRT discussions. And you're right, they may not win in all these cases, but they may win the school board elections. And in these kinds of situations, the people that they want to put in are people who who really want to deny American history insofar as it relates to systemic forms of discrimination. And again, they're targeting critical race theory, but when you dig deeper into these bans they 're going after gender discrimination they're going after discrimination that relates to trans people. Some of these bans suggest that uh that you can't use the word "social justice in pursuit of a of an understanding of what it means to try to dismantle some of the institutional obstacles that have been put in place that various Americans face and so you know that's what we 're up against, and it's kind of like from the right's perspective, rolling a ball down a hill, because they're talking to people that know little or nothing about even well, the communities enough. that they it live leads in. Leads
0: me to my final question, which is: I think a lot of folks are, you know, like me, think well, they're just talking to people who already are racist, who are already anti-education about the history of this country. But that sort of encourages a passivity on the part of folks who want to resist that. And and we can't just think that, oh, that's so patently, transparently problematic that surely it won't go forward. It already has gone forward. So let me just ask you, finally, you know, there's a clearly a gap between – this campaign about critical race theory and what critical race theory actually is and does. Can you talk about that gap and maybe just something about what folks can do who recognize the problem that this actually is?
1: Well, you know, critical race theory, these ideas, the ideas that are at the center of it, It traveled worldwide as tools for analysis with respect to racial, gender, and other social justice concerns. Although it originated as a field within the context of the legal academy, it it provides and serves a shared objective for professionals across a variety of institutional spaces. Critical race theorists strive to educate Americans about what it means to eliminate systemic racism and sexism, and that's just where we start. And there are a lot of Americans that are involved in this, from elementary and secondary school teachers to diversity, equity, and inclusion advocates to racial justice and democracy activists. So what's that about? what's it mean to push back against this? To make a long story short, critical race theory, it's a field of study that asks why we have clearly visible and durable forms of racial inequality centuries after emancipation and decades after the adoption of ideas about colorblindness and formal equality. So in this respect, CRT, to be sure, it has nothing to do with what the right-wing disinformation campaign says it's all about. Really, it's just a pathway to unearthing uh, the ways in which our society has structured racial inequality into its everyday institutions, practices, and policy priorities. What do I mean by this? Take, for example, the public policies that emerged in the New Deal, in the Roosevelt administration. Take Federal Housing Administration and, and take the GI Bill. The, the, the Federal Housing Administration, now think about it, They contributed $120 billion in resources so that people could get mortgages who couldn't get them before. And that wasn't just a group of people that included people of color. You know, the ordinary white person, until this period in time, couldn't afford to buy a house, right? But that $120 billion, only 2% of that went to all people of color. And that money went to the creation of the white suburbs at a time when people of color were moved into rental properties and what would become urban poor communities. The most significant element of the wealth gap between black people and white people is a function of those kinds of policies. So to understand the present, you have to understand the past. And that's exactly what the conservatives and the right wing doesn't want. So what does this tell us? That the truth is, no matter who we are, we're going to solve problems. The only way we can do that is to be honest about the sources of those problems. That said, I think that it's perfectly appropriate to have conversations about systemic racism that makes sense, not just for white children, but for children of color. Look, I was born in the middle of the 20th century, 1950. I was born when apartheid was still legal, in many parts of the country, and de facto apartheid existed where I lived. Now, I didn't live in in the deep south. I lived in South Jersey, but the neighborhood that I lived in, the school that I went to, and the workplaces that my parents had access to were all subject to the effects of de facto and de jure apartheid in the United States. It would have been useful, and it would have been a learning experience for me to understand. What happened, uh, such that I lived in the community that I lived in? What was still happening and what needed to change? But those are all the kinds of ideas that the right wing doesn't want shared. So where does this leave us? The bottom line is we can't fight for racial justice if we can't see speak, and learn about racial injustice. We have to recognize that teaching about the contradictions in American history, that it sharpens young minds and enhances critical thinking. In effect, teaching about systemic racism and sexism provides a bridge to unite us all because it's a pathway for all of us to be treating more fairly.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Luke Harris. Again, that's AAPF.org. Luke Harris, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you, Janine.
0: If you don't know the story of how a consortium of journalists revealed how countries around the world have bought spyware from an Israeli surveillance firm, supposedly to track terrorists and other criminals, well, that's understandable. Though it is a journalist-driven effort and is leading to calls for the resignation of officials in Hungary, for example, the Pegasus Project hasn't really gotten the pay attention to this treatment from U.S. news media. But that emphatically does not mean that the story doesn't concern you and your right to know. Joining us now to help connect those dots is Cindy Cohen, Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome back to Counterspin, Cindy Cohen. Thank you. Well, we're talking about the Pegasus Project because of a leak of tens of thousands of phone numbers uh, believed selected as candidates for possible surveillance by clients of this company NSO Group. The technology in question doesn't just allow access to conversations and photos, but can also turn your cell phone into a listening device. But for those who really haven't heard anything. What is the story here? What's going on?
2: Well, there has been a dark business that has existed for quite a while now, developing what we call malware, which is, you know, software but designed to hurt you, and selling it to governments to use, against people that governments want to secretly track. What happened here was that a list of 50,000 phone numbers that had been targeted by NSO Group's clients leaked and got to a bunch of journalists. And they started analyzing it and figuring out who some of these people were. When it turns out a tremendous number of them are, are journalists all around the world. kind of reveals how deeply governments are engaged in spying on the people who bring us the news.
0: Well, my sense is that this is being treated as suggesting a threat of potential misuse rather than constituting a harm in its own right. And it seems to be kind of running up against the, well, it doesn't have to bother me because I have nothing to hide phenomenon. I'm not asking you to scare people, but can you just illustrate the seriousness of the findings here? What are the implications?
2: Well, the NSO group is reportedly, and, and this leak confirms it, Deeply involved in Saudi Arabia's spying and ultimately killing of reporter Jamal Khashoggi, as well as a Mexican journalist. This isn't just about spying. This is about murder at the end of the day. And, you know, we all rely on journalists' ability to find out what's going on, especially in ways that governments don't like, to be an informed populace. I mean, I, I think it's not an overstatement to say the question of self-governance turns on whether. The current people in power can hide from us the truth about what's going on in the world. You know, how do we how do we elect the right people if the people in power right now are making sure we don't find out the whole story? So I think it's tremendously important for fundamentally, are are we governing ourselves?
0: Well, to be clear, this Israeli company, NSO Group, they're not the only source of concern here, right?
2: No, no, no. There's a, they're, you know, they're one of the the more notorious, and, and of course they were the subject of this leak, and the list of countries was is pretty bad uh, here. But yeah, they're not the only one. As I said, this is, this is a business, and it's a dark business that I think some people, including the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, ultimately we reached the point where we're calling for a moratorium on governmental use of these malware technologies. Because it's clear that governments can't use them responsibly, and we don't have real mechanisms for accountability when they misuse it either. And so, you know, whether it's stopping governments from getting this in the first place or making sure that when governments misuse this information, we have real remedies, we aren't doing any of that right now.
0: Well, I'm going to bring you back to what accountability might look like. But if I can just take a question on media, you know, I'm thinking back to the show 24 that suggested that, you know, there might be a time when you need to torture someone, you know, because they have information that would prevent the deaths of many people. We get into a lot of trolley problems. And don't you think the state should be allowed to surveil cell phones in case terrorists something, something, something? You know, the justice minister in Hungary says every country needs such tools. How do you talk about what's being lost here? How do we bring folks back to valuing privacy in this moment where people, some people anyway, just seem to have given up? And the idea that, well, if I'm not committing a crime, I, I shouldn't care about my privacy.
2: Few things. The first thing I would say is that we shouldn't take policy advice from a fictional TV show. <laughs> you know, the reality is the U.S. Senate did a big report on the, the torture uh, done under the Bush administration. Like the times in which we need Keeper Sullivan to torture people is—it's a fiction most of the time. Ninety-nine point nine nine percent of the time, it's a fiction. And I think if we're not grounded in that, and if we're stuck in, you know, TV. We're not going to be able to look at this fairly. So that's the first thing I would do is I would push back on the TV show as a basis for us deciding our laws. The second thing I would argue is that, you know, the Constitution, the American Constitution is all about limits on what the government can do, right? It's not the case that the founders of this country, and for good reason, of course, because we wouldn't have gotten independence if the founders of this country hadn't decided that letting the cops just randomly break into people's houses to find out whether people were paying their taxes or not. Remember, the Boston Tea Party was about taxes, and the Fourth Amendment was written because the colonists didn't think it was okay for the cops to just break into anybody's house because they might be breaking the law and that's what the 4th amendment's based on and that's not the only thing you know certainly there's international law something called the necessary and proportionate principle that's built into international law that reflects some of the same values of the 4th amendment they're not exactly the same but both all of them recognize that you can't just never say no to government because they might be able to dream up a scenario in which they need power. The whole idea of a society that's governed by laws and not by men is based upon limiting what the government can do. So I guess, sure, if we want to just go back to a feudal society where rulers have all the power, we're certainly capable of doing that. But I would argue that 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 really undoes hundreds of years of trying to find a balance between governmental power and the rest of us. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get historical about it, but I really do think this idea that, you know, because the government can dream up of some reason why it might need a power, we should give it to them, really flies in the face of the whole history of this country, and I would argue even longer. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, you know, you can't always predict who's going to be in power in the future. We just came out of four years of of an administration that felt very differently about who its enemies were than the administration before that. And whether you're a fan of the, you know, the previous administration or the one before that, you have to recognize that who's in charge of those levers of power can change and can change in very dramatic ways. And again, you know, if you look at the list of people who are on the 50,000 phone numbers that were leaked here you see the kinds of people who really the rest of us rely on. And, you know, central to that is journalists. There were over 180 journalists on the list that they were able to confirm, but I suspect there are many more. Human rights defenders, political activists, opposition parties, even President Macron of France was on the list. So even currently powerful political people were on the list because they're being watched by others. So I think that it's not realistic to think that we always and forever will have governmental powers who will only use these powers for good and never use them for evil. Instead, we have to put systems and structures in place to cabin those situations so that we limit the times in which they happen and we have accountability when they do. We be able to sue if these malware companies are pretending to be them. They have deep the pockets, they can do this. But also the people who are harmed should be able to. And EFF brought a case a few years ago on behalf of an American guy who was spied on by the government of Ethiopia. He was an immigrant. And we were unable to get a remedy for this guy because of the doctrine of sovereign immunity. We need those doctrines to get out of the way so that people can have real accountability. And then the companies that actually built this software need to be accountable when that software is used to hurt somebody. You know, if you have a tool that is designed to hurt people and then it hurts people, you should be held accountable for those farms and you shouldn't be able to basically wash your hands of it. And then finally, these companies, you know, NSO Group claimed that it had a set of rules about who it sold to and wouldn't sell to repressive governments, but it seems that they were completely toothless and we need to hold companies to those kinds of standards and we need to make them accountable when they violate them.
0: And make them transparent so that folks know what's going on, because it's often being told that it's in our name.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's like the, you know, the stepping stone, right? Without transparency, you can't have accountability. We have lived for 200 years in the United States with the, the idea of warrant, where the government has to go to a judge and make its case, and then it gets a warrant to be able to turn on surveillance against you. The country has not fallen. Because we have basic accountability in this area. Now, I, I would argue we probably need more accountability in the context of domestic warrants, but uh, we at least have some uh, in these international situations. Right now, we have you know almost none, and we really need to bring the level up so that we can stop these kinds of travesties.
0: We've been speaking with Cindy Cohn. She's executive director at Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find their work online at EFF.org. Cindy Cohn, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
2: Thank you so much for giving us some attention.
0: That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group. You can get more information on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noise. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.